0: Welcome everyone to another Pageant Planet podcast. This is the podcast for contestants who want to be inspired and discover how to win the crown. Today, Jesse Ledoux, our queen of coaching, and myself, we are taking a pause from our normal biographies to focus on the crucial issue facing our society today.
1: No matter where you are in the world, you've heard about the Black Lives Matter movement reaching new heights in the United States. And this is due to a largely politicized case of a man named George Floyd being killed at the hands of police during an arrest on video. And this video went viral very quickly. And this shed a light on continued challenges with police brutality and the black community.
0: Yeah. And I actually found out something interesting. A friend of mine from Minnesota came in. And he said that when this initially happened to George Floyd, and my mind was blown, that the, um, the police department or somebody hired a, uh, the person who does autopsies mm-hmm. and said that he didn't initially die from suffocation. Now, I haven't researched this myself to see, um, but they said he didn't initially die of uh, suffocation. It was like something else. And I don't even remember what it was because we were just talking um <laughs> actually over drinks. So, I mean, how much do I actually remember? But um he said when that's one of the things that really caused eruption there. And then the family of George Floyd hired someone else to do a second autopsy. And that's when the guy confirmed, no, he actually died of like um, asphyxiation. Mm-hmm. So, um, it, I found that really interesting um, just even there that at, you have such a clear case knee on the neck for gosh, I mean minutes and eight
1: minutes, I think it was,
0: yeah, it's like eight or nine minutes.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and then so, like they bring in somebody else to say, Oh no, that that's actually not what happened. <laughs> and then it really caused an uproar as it mm-hmm. rightfully should. But so, you know, it, you listening might be thinking like, why in the world is Pageant Planet like covering this? You should just stick to pageants. And in truth, we are. Through this issue, um, though this issue started in America, like we are experiencing a ripple effect that's been felt globally. I think in France, mm-hmm. there's 20,000 people that marched um, mm-hmm. for the Black Lives Matter movement. So depending on your pageant, you could be asked about this inside of your pageant interview. So this is going to help you. Additionally, like our goal is to serve black women who compete in an overwhelmingly white industry and also to white contestants who want to become better allies and directors who might have some blind spots concerning this issue.
1: And when this issue was heating up, I wasn't sure what to say or how to say it. As a white woman, I was so so torn. Like, do I say something? Do I not say something? How do I say it? And my friend and former Miss International, Elise Banks, she's a black woman, made me feel confident speaking out by saying an imperfect message is better than staying silent. And at that point I was like, okay, look, I'm just gonna try to express my support for the black community in my own words. So I thought, as Stephen and I were having our own side conversations about the industry and how this pertains, who better to join us on today's podcast and the woman who inspired me with understanding and respect that I can play a role in this conversation, too. So welcome, Elise Banks.
2: Hi, Jesse and Stephen. Thank you so much for having me and just what's really an important conversation during this time. Yeah. Yeah, we're looking forward to hearing your voice.
0: Yeah. Same. So welcome, Elise. And we know that you're a former Miss International, like Jesse just said, and that you're also a mental health counselor, which, I mean, you got to be very busy right now. Um, well, why don't you share to our listeners a little more about yourself and your role in the pageant community, past and present, and your professional life?
2: Absolutely. So I actually started competing in the USA system when I was 15 and uh, was a teen contestant. Uh, very quickly moved on to Miss when I turned 18 and won some local pageants in that system and then you know retired when i aged out uh but was introduced to the international system in 2015 and went on to win miss texas international and then miss international uh, currently um, i'm no longer competing but i still judge pageants. I actually judged my first virtual pageant yesterday, which was interesting just due to the virus. The director wanted to keep things safe. So we were all judging uh, through Zoom. And uh, I MC pageants as well. But most of my time is taken up from you know being a clinical psychotherapist. And I split my time between a private school here in Houston, as well as a private practice. And so um, I've been busy with people just trying to get a handle on what's going on in our country right now and it started with the virus and taking their mental health into consideration to get through lockdown and physical distancing and now it's turned into what's going on in our country in regards to race and either I'm being affected by this because I am a Black person or I'm a, I'm being affected by this because I'm trying to support the Black community and so I'm getting a lot of clients wanting to talk about that now.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, 2020 has been from start to present has been just a a hot mess. And um, I saw a meme that said, whoever started playing Jumanji, if you could just finish that game, that would be great for all Mm -hmm. of us. (laughs) And I I want to preference like... um us transitioning for the podcast is to say like at least jesse and i we don't always say the right things and it might come out in a way that we don't intend or maybe are just completely oblivious to so you have complete permission to call us out and correct us because we want this to be a learning experience not only for us but for other individuals that are listening to be like oh wow i say that too or i had that same question also
1: Well, while we're talking about the craziness of 2020, I saw a meme. And as you were talking, Stephen, I was like, I got to say that meme. So I found it real quick. And this is the positive of 2020. It says COVID-19 woke you up to taking care of your health. Shelter in place woke you up to appreciating the life you have. The recession woke you up to the importance of saving your money. The Black Lives Matter movement woke you up to the power of taking action. You're awake now, and it will take a conscious decision and intentional work to stay awake. Don't let them rock you back to sleep. I love that.
0: That is so good. Very That's powerful. That's
1: a silver lining to everything happening. Absolutely. Um, so full disclosure, Elisa and I had a side chat as we were talking about today's podcast, what was important for our listeners to hear and how it would make sense. And one of the first things I candidly mentioned to Elise when we hopped on our prep call was sometimes I didn't even feel comfortable saying the word black for a long time. I didn't feel like I had a right to say someone was a black person, the black community, like it would be insulting or that as a white person, it's inappropriate. And should I stick with people of color or African American? Like I was literally starting this journey from square one. Um, So at least for someone that's like me that really just didn't know where to start, like what would you suggest?
2: Sure. So I I always say when I'm doing any type of podcast or just on my Instagram story that I am just one voice in the black community. And so I don't speak for every black person. You know, everyone has a different perspective. Everyone has different experiences, but you know, I'm just sharing my heart today with y'all and You know, when I was younger, I was talking to Jesse about, I went to my mom and I said, I don't understand why people are called, you know, black and white. You know, I'm not as, my skin is not as dark as a black piece of paper. And a a white person, their, their skin is not as light as a white piece of paper. So I walked around as a child saying peach and brown. That was just what I saw and observed with my eyes. And I thought those were better words. But now as an adult, I think what's important is to respect what an individual wants to be called. And so as we think about um, how we've come as a country in using pronouns for individuals, whether it's he, she, they, I think it's the same thing when it comes to race. I personally am not offended whether someone calls me a Black woman or African-American, but I do know some people who prefer one or the other. Um, I know some people do not like the term African-American because they feel like, in their heritage, uh, the African part was stolen from them and that's mm-hmm. a bad memory. And so they do not want to be continually tied to something that was taken away from them. So they would prefer to be called black or a person of color There are other people, regardless of how they got to this country, who still feel like part of my heritage is in Africa. And I'm proud of that. So sure, call me African-American. So I think it really depends on the person. And the best thing to do is to ask them one, what do you prefer to be called? What is your race? What is your heritage? And having that conversation. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. And I would almost feel a little uncomfortable asking that question. And fun to be transparent, just to be like, um, I, hmm uh, Elise, I know we just met, what would you prefer to be called? Black woman, woman of color, African-American. Like, I I don't know. I'm clueless over here. Right. Um, so for you, if you were to get that question on the spot, it sounds like you were okay with it, but could somebody else take that as an offensive?
2: I think they could, but it's also where it naturally comes into the conversation. I mean, if I meet you at the first time and we're at Starbucks and you say, you know, are you black? I mean that it's a little random. Yeah. But if we're having a conversation, <laughs> hey, I want a latte. are you
0: black, by the way? Okay, right, right. cool. Great.
2: <laughs> but if we're having a conversation and that comes up naturally, it I feel like it's appropriate to ask. What I what I've only got offended by is when someone would say Um, And I get this often, what are you? And now I make it into this joke, like I'm a human, I'm a woman, like I'm not sure what you're asking me right now. Um, Or someone will say, you know, what are you mixed with? You can't just be black. And there are different parts of my heritage that I can, you know, get into, but to me, it's like, well, why can't I just be black? What's the problem with that? Why do I have to be mixed with something Mm -hmm. to, I guess, gain your approval? And so that those are the times where I personally get offended. But if someone asks me like to tell them more about my heritage, I, I think that's a beautiful question, honestly.
1: Mm, So it's don't assume come from a place of wanting to be educated.
2: Absolutely. Got it. I know my
0: um, my mentors, my first business mentors. They were a black couple from Bermuda, and um, it was it was okay for me to be like, uh, okay, yeah, you, you're a black woman, or because we had some conversations around uh, race and just the differences, black or white, and like what they experienced versus what I experienced. And of course, like oblivious to it, right? Um, and it wasn't even until this movement happened that i realized just how blind and how resistant i was towards certain areas of conversation mm-hmm. um part of that was packaging how it was presented to me as you made reference to earlier somebody just came up and said are you black <laughs> or like what are you um <laughs> so part of it is that but the other is just um is uncomfortable and i can still remember the feeling that um i i, I don't know even how it came up but um she corrected me. Lorma was her, was her name. She corrected me. She said, no, woman of color. And I was like, oh, uh, okay. okay. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, I became hyper aware. So now mm-hmm. it's like, I, you know, I had this mentor that I looked up to who I, I always thought black was fine. And then now all of a sudden there's a woman of color. And I'm like, ah, now I just, I, I don't know. Like, what, what should I say? Then there's african American. So I, I'm glad that you really um, cleared that up. Yeah, that was yeah. beneficial for me. Mm-hmm. So uh, we we have listeners on all aspects of the pageant community, so we want really want to just take a moment to discuss our audience, uh, like who the audience for today's podcast might be. So if you're a parent who listens for your child, um, who is a contestant, listen and have a conversation with them. Like we have details today for systems, directors, and staff of pageants, and of course we have thought for of contestants themselves. But know that. It may be a little uncomfortable at times to hear if you're not used to having these challenging conversations,
1: and we we're kind of we're approaching this in a really light way. Stephen, Elise, and I have all met. so for those listening, like we're approaching this from a conversation that friends may have. Um, but know that it's a very serious topic and we do take it very seriously. So I want to make sure that that, cause we're just naturally light people, um, as far as conversation goes. So keep that in mind. Um, but let's talk about why the conversation is important within the pageant community specifically. And there are several reasons. First, the public reception when a black woman is crowned. Um, uh, and there were so many articles about Deshaunna Barber specifically, miss USA 2016 but several after um and she specifically spoke out to say that she would receive messages and comments that had monkey emojis the n word and other disparaging remarks and not to mention the, the hundreds and thousands of comments that said she only won because she's black and in my 32 years of life i've never heard someone say she only won because she's white never so the fact that that conversation even happens we have to start now. And Elise, have you heard any negative comments in regard to your success over the years?
2: Well, I'll start with I was really disappointed in the pageant community after Deshana won and then, you know, right after Miss USA 2017 was a woman of color as well, and you know, people freaked out. And I remember thinking, I'm really confused because when there is, you know, white person after white person after white person after white person winning a title, you hear nothing except you know she's gorgeous and well deserved and absolutely great choice judges. And then when two, you know, back to back Miss USAs are black, then there's a problem. And so I was really disappointed during that time. I, there was um, an issue with the current Miss Universe winning and i just thought it reminded me like we there's places in our country where we've come a long way and then there's places where we take several steps back personally you know when i won I naturally surround myself with people who are encouraging, supportive and hold me accountable and challenge me. Um I'm not one that goes on the pageant blogs and <laughs> places where you're going to read and observe nasty negative comments. So I've never had someone reach out to me by like a, you know, a text or a message on social media and say some of the really hurtful things that they said to Deshona. Um, but I know for sure things have been said about me, you know, when I'm not in the room. And I know there were several maybe question marks when I won certain pageants. But my experience actually, that was probably the most hurtful, was when I won a local pageant in the USA system. Um, and when I won, everything was fine. But the director actually, I was her title holder and she also had another title holder she had to get us both ready for state and the way she prepared us was extremely different um the the only difference besides our the title on our sash was the color of our skin and the amount of resources and preparation she put for the other title holder who was a friend of mine at the time um, compared to what she gave me was noticeable Uh, People were even asking me, like, are you, I mean, is she helping you at all? I mean, it it was pretty bad. And I remember feeling very hurt because I thought, you know, I've won a pageant. It's supposed to come with all of these things. And I felt like in the moment I was just being tolerated Mm -hmm. and just, okay, just get her to state and then we don't have to deal with her. I mean, that's how I felt the whole year. And I took that experience as hurtful as it was. It really did help me when I went to the international system because I was used to having to compete and train on my own. I was used to having to get on my own resources. And so when I get to the international system, and I actually had amazing directors, then it was hard for me to accept help because I was so used to doing it all myself. And it was nice for a change to have people who were supportive of me as their title holder and wanted to see me succeed.
1: Well, let me ask you this. Do you think it was a personal reason that she didn't? Or do you think she knew what the system was looking for and they haven't crowned a woman of color in a long time. And maybe she was like, well, why bother?
2: There's a lot that could go into that. I mean, I I think personally there were no issues I'd known that director for a while, but you're right. I mean, when you look at, uh, specifically the Miss Texas USA pageant, there, uh, just have not been, very many african-american winners and so when you know now i'm a title holder competing for that pageant it's it's almost like well if they're not looking for this type of winner why do i need to put my resources into her so that could you know definitely uh, could be a part of it but i think it is a wake-up call for directors to look at how they are treating their title holders and when you have someone win whether you agree with The choice or not your judges pick that person for for a reason and so your responsibility as a director is to make that person feel as special and as supported as possible throughout their reign no matter what they look like
0: so you're probably not alone like there's probably been other contestants like other black contestants specifically who have felt this way right about like their director kind of favoring more the white contestant or um having a different experience. So what did you do internally, or maybe this was like a mantra or some sort of exercise, so that you didn't get a hard heart about it and that you really extracted the best possible experience?
2: Well, you have to remember, I mean, I grew up in a household where my parents experienced a lot of racism growing up and that came off the heels of their parents, my grandparents who experienced even more racism. So I grew up in a house where I was told to treat everybody with respect and kindness. And also, I was taught that I will always have to work harder, always. And it doesn't matter how many degrees I have or how many letters are behind my name. There are some people who will not care for me because of the color of my skin. So with that in the back of my mind, even when I was competing, I just knew I had to treat Everybody with respect and kindness, no matter how they treated me, mm. and I also knew I just had to work 150 percent harder because the cards were stacked against me, honestly. And so, you know, when it came to that director, I was never mean, I never called her out. Um, I, I just dug my heels and did what I knew to do to be successful, and I did it, and I just never wanted. For someone to say, well, you know, at least she may have done this, but you were mean and you, you know, were nasty to her too. And I never wanted someone to be able to say that about me. So when I look back, I'm proud of myself for still holding my head up high despite the fact that I was treated differently.
0: So uh, going back to your parents, was there something that happened to you um, early on, like a school? And then you said, Mom, Dad, like, you know a b or c happened and they're like mm, okay it's, it's it's time that we have the conversation or did they preemptively bring up the conversation and be like okay this is probably going to happen to you in, in your life how did how did that play out for you
2: when i was younger there were really small things that happened that my parents would try to navigate with me and i would blow it off For example, in kindergarten, (laughs) I was not invited to a birthday party. And you know, I went to a predominantly white uh, private school from kindergarten through my senior year. Um, All of the girls in my class were Caucasian, and I was not invited to. Particular birthday party, and the girl told her mom it was because I didn't have bangs, which I didn't. But I mean, neither did some of the other girls. And so again, <laughs> I, you know,
1: bangs are never, never. <laughs> Why well, should say never? Some people look amazing. Are usually yeah. not a great choice. So
2: good for <laughs> you. So I, you know, being five or six at the time, I just thought, oh, okay, like I don't have bangs. My parents knew what was going on, and so they just you know, made me feel better by saying it's, you know, it's okay, let's do something else, you know, while everyone else is at the birthday party. Um, So there were little moments like that throughout my schooling where my parents saw what was really happening, but I kept pushing it off. But my first experience was when I was 16. And uh, we were looking for my first car. And, um, my dad and I went to the car dealership. There was nobody else in terms of customers, nobody. So you would think, you know, the, the car dealers would the you know, salespeople would be jumping at the chance to sell a car because they're commission based, right? No one helped us. They actually all stayed in the break room, drinking coffee or whatever they were doing. Uh, We just stood in the center of the dealership. Finally, this, um African lady with a very, very thick accent. She came out and she was like, I'm finishing with a customer, but as soon as I'm done, I will help y'all. And you know, she's like, go ahead and start looking for a car. So make a long story short, mm. um, when it was time to buy the car, we had to go over to the finance department. And the guy said, you know, he starts getting the loan papers ready. Most people usually take out a loan. Um, and my dad said, you know, I'm gonna pay cash. And the guy goes, Well, can you afford to do that?
0: Oh my gosh! How insulting!
2: At sixteen, I remember thinking, "Is wait a minute, that's not an appropriate question." Like, does he ask everybody this, right? Right. And so my dad looked at him and was like, "Of course, man. Like, why would I write you a check that's not going to clear?" And he was like, "Well, I just want to make sure it has to. The money has to be in the account today." And honestly, I think my dad, looking back, my dad should have <laughs> just gotten up and said, you know what? My money's not good here. Yeah. Clearly this is a problem for y'all. But I think he just being my dad, who's super kind, just yeah. didn't want to ruin that experience for me and having my first car. And he just went with it. But that was my first time feeling like, Oh, I'm different. And in this case, not in a good way.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. So I, I had this experience. Um, and so my, in a previous business, I had a business partner and he was a black guy, best man at my wedding. I'm just dear friend. And it was him, me, and another black guy who was doing marketing for us. And we were in New York and, um, we were, we're staying in, um, what is it? Uh, Times Square. So we walked into the hotel room and, um, we, we both walked in, I walked in, or I'm sorry, all three of us walked in, walked in, got into the elevator, hit the button. I'm like, gosh, where are they? I'm like, whatever, I'll I'll wait for him up in the room. So they came in, it was like 15 minutes later, they're like, oh my gosh, like they got stopped in the lobby and they're like, "Um, do you all belong here? Like, are you staying here? And they're like, yeah, we're staying here. Why would we be in here? They're like, we're gonna need need a a room card or a key card Mm -hmm. or see some ID and made them go like check the reservations and cross check and all that. We all three walked in at the same time. And the crazy thing was, like, my business partner was the one paying for the hotel. I was the poor one out of the group. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, out of anyone, I was the one that should not be in that hotel. But, like, it was, I'm like, wait, what happened? And even still, it didn't even register. And, like, there has probably been know, half a dozen other times where he and I, we both walked into a building simultaneously. We were treated very different because um, we we do. We, we look very different, too. Um so, but it was like it was night and day, and I think because we looked so different, um just in physical appearance and um and him being black and me being white, and like that they didn't think that we were like quote together, um, so they probably single they singled him out, so I got to see it a lot, but even still oblivious to like. Certain things that I'm learning that is more white privilege, where it's like it's not even on my radar because it never Mm -hmm. even happens to me.
2: Yeah. Well, I know that, you know, my dad shared a story with me. He had someone come out to the house to fix something, and the worker got there and um, got out of his truck and said, you know, can I speak to the owner of the house? And my dad was like, yeah, that's me. And he goes, you own this house. And it's little subtle conversations like that where it's, do you ask your white customers this? Like, do you ask them if this is their house when, like, who else is answering the door, right? (laughs) Um, And so it's it's little conversations when people say, like, I'm not racist. Okay, maybe you're not, but wh- wh- what do you think about someone when they come in the door? What do you, what, what thoughts run across your head? What kind of conversations are you having having with people of color? Do you let people make jokes and you sit as a bystander? Those are the type of things I'm, I'm looking at. I'm not looking at the ones who are, you know, wearing or going to KKK meetings. I mean, those are obvious. I'm looking for the more subtle uh, parts of racism in our country. Yeah, mm-hmm.
0: gosh, and- that's good.
1: Oh, go ahead, Stephen. No, I was just
0: saying that's that's really good. Like because racism doesn't show up in the obvious way, right? Yeah, I'm not a racist. Yeah, of course I've never been to a KKK rally. No, but how many black jokes have you told last week, or how many right. black jokes have you let mm-hmm. me tell in your presence? Which is a right. completely different conversation.
1: Well, and there are hundreds of thousands of stories like, Stephen, you just told, and at least you've told. And there are Americans that believe racism doesn't exist in today's society, believe it or not, after hearing that. And while there are laws and systems in place today to represent equality, we can't help but acknowledge the practices over the past century that set us up this for this disparity which still impacts much of the black community today and that's where i think people get confused like okay racism doesn't exist today there's affirmative action there's there's this and they're and they don't see that the black community has been set up to fail for a long time and steven um you and i were talking about real estate and banking on our on our last private call one-on-one about um black lives matter movement do you want to share the one thing that um you said really connected to you
0: Yeah, and I actually have to attribute this to you because you shared on your story, and I started watching it and cut off, and then when we started, we had a really long conversation that really led to this particular podcast, Um, you shared with me the full video, which I posted on my Instagram, like at Stephen Roddy, but um, I found this really interesting. So redlining, it started in the 1960s, and neighborhoods, which were... Typically, minority neighborhoods were redlined on maps. So they just drew a red line around it in a box. And these areas were defined uh, or denied federal resources and were used by banks to determine who could receive loans or even like insurance. So even in the 1980s, studies were showing it was easier for lower income white individuals to receive loans from banks than higher earning black individuals. Like if they lived within these red line zones. So there's definitely something that's kind of been, um, gosh, either just outright taught because we're, we're really not that removed, like far removed from slavery. Like, like uh, when you look at the actual years that's passed, um, Mm -hmm. my, my ex-girlfriend, the girl who got me into pageants, she was a black woman, and um, so dating her and meeting her grandma, her grandma in Georgia, like, told a story when she, I mean, she was very young, like, five or six, was, like, she was, it was a slave, and she, like, ran, um, and it was some sort of, I don't think it was... I don't remember the type and I'm feeling a bit insecure even talking about this because it was just one conversation one story that she had. And in that moment I was, my mind was blown away because of like, I met someone that had experience with that and I was in the room with them. Mm -hmm. Um, So, and she was just the sweetest woman ever. So um, I don't even know where I was going with that, but it's it's almost like it's not that far removed. So some of these laws that were in place or these, Programs that were in place are still being used today, and the people that are using them probably have no idea of the origin,
1: Mm -hmm. or they're not even aware that they were even happening for that reason. Yeah, and if red lines and red lines, I don't know if they're still being used, but the earliest I could find in history was, or the latest I could find in history was the 1980s, which was 40 years ago. Yeah, that's like our parent, like our parents probably when they went to the bank, they looked at maps and there were red lines on them. Um. But, Elise, that's the like, the business side of it. Your mom actually shared with me a story about your grandfather who was a World War II veteran that that's when it really was like, "Wow, like this we have to fix this today." Um, do you know this story, or do you want me to share?
2: No, I know that story. I mean, you know one world our world War two veterans are are You know, some of our most respected veterans Mm -hmm. Um, and my grandfather fought in the war. He was stationed in France, actually spoke French. And what's interesting about my grandfather, um, because of his German heritage, my grandfather actually looks Caucasian. Mm. Um, Only way you can tell that he has a black part of his heritage as well is because of his hair. But even his hair, although it was more textured, was red when he was younger. So. (laughs) Um, he was very handsome. And even despite that, he was still treated like all the other black soldiers, you know, eventually veterans. And when World War II veterans, you know, came back to the stage or when they were they finished, they were given a GI bill, which could help them, you know, further their education. It could help them buy a house, you know, it could help them do so many things, start a company. And the white veterans got this money from the government, the black veterans did not. And so even though my grandfather was serving our country, defending our country, trying to protect us, he still got back and was basically told like, well, thanks for your service. Good luck. And that was it. Whereas his white counterparts were getting money to further their lives. And so I really appreciate my grandparents. I mean, my, he eventually married my grandmother. They had seven children and he worked as a, you know, he was a professor, but then at night he was a janitor just to make ends meet. Um, for his seven kids my mom's the youngest of those seven and you know I've just seen it brings me to tears I've just seen how hard my family had to work despite being at a disadvantage um, you know to this day there's a Jewish bakery in Houston that I actually live relatively close, close to and I love it because I've been going there since I was a child and right across the street are my parents their first um, apartments when they got married in 1980 and um, they're decent I mean nothing you want to like Put all over your social media, but they were decent, but they were small. And now I look at my parents 40 years later and how they have started companies and they have real estate and all of these things because they just worked hard, but they definitely were not given handouts. Um, They definitely, you know, were pushed back in their careers often. And that's why when I was younger, they would say, you know, Elise, we are going to afford you an education because you're going to have to have that. You're going to have to, to even be at the table with some people. Mm -hmm. But from there, you're just going to have to work really, really hard. And I love that. I've had that work ethic that's come from my parents, my grandparents dating back to uh, those of my family who were slaves, that is what has gotten me to where I am at 32 in my career, because I did not expect any handouts. I did not expect my parents to fund any part of my life. I just had to work hard.
0: Yeah. Mm. Well, like, so the Civil War took place in 1865. World War I took place only like 53 years later. So it was really possible, to um, I mean, I actually showed a photo of someone who it was it was three generations. It was like a, a son, a dad, and a grandpa, and they fought in like all three wars from uh, World War One, Civil War, and it was like what was it the uh, Mexican uh, the Mexico Wars? Really, I'm missing the name, but it it shows you just how close it was, and then World War Two was only 20 years after that. So World War Two was. 70 years after the civil war, not a whole long time. And so you're talking about not even uh, a century had passed. So the very people, especially in the South, right. Whereas like it had to be really deep rooted Mm -hmm. because you would see um, these um, black individuals as like property and you'd breed them like animals. And then now all of a sudden, you know, you're fighting next to them in a ward 50 years later, or your son is. So I could only imagine, I mean, I, I can't even imagine because there's no frame of reference what these individuals had to overcome, what your grandparents did and what your parents did. It's like, it is just, it's wild. Um, and I mean, congrats to your parents for coming and overcoming those obstacles and, really raising an amazing daughter and you with such a level-headedness and that you're able to give back and contribute in a very kind of just a compassionate way for those of us it's just oblivious
2: yeah i appreciate that and you know i was thinking as you were talking about just even you know this is an election year and it wasn't long ago in our country where black people couldn't vote and um I mean, even before that, women couldn't vote. And so one of the things that, you know, my family is very much instilled in me is the power of voting. And, you know, they told me, if you choose not to vote um, in elections, you are basically slapping the face of every person that worked hard for women and for Black people to vote. So even just that part of our country, the right to vote is still a newer concept for Black Americans. Mm.
0: Yeah. yeah, so I mean, Band Aid is—I mean, the actual Band Aid that you put on your leg—they're just coming out to say that they're going to release Band Aid products with multiple skin cones, skin tones, after being in business for a hundred years, and that's something that as a white person has never been inconvenienced or like had to even think about. And there are a lot of other examples of how society is skewed in the favor of white population. And I can remember my um, my my friend, uh, my white friend, her parents really open were like, took her to I think it was Toys R Us and said, which doll did you want? And my friend being very practical, six year old, she was like, "Mm, I want this one. She picked up the black doll and it was like <laughs> and she's like well they're like well why why did you want this one why don't you want this this other doll like her parents were kind of leading her to the white doll because like uncles and stuff are very um you know would use derogatory terms and talking about black people she's like well i'd like this one because like it makes more sense it wouldn't get dirty as easy and it would stay like nicer longer and they're like okay and they bought it her the doll and when she took, like, the uncles would definitely, like, say the N-word, et cetera, about her her doll, like, to her. So that was the programming when she was five or six. And, I mean, she's very sweet and not like that at all. But it's like that's the kind of things that it's just – it's almost put in you at such a young age, right, that it, it's almost like it, it's okay. And, of course, yeah, they're not racist because they're not doing a, a rally. But they're also saying those things.
1: Right. Hopefully, we're at the turning point that it's not even the fact that um, for me, it's like okay, I need to be more cognizant about calling it out when I see it because I have the privilege of not saying anything that doesn't affect me directly, right? So I think this is what this whole podcast is for: is building allies um, for to support the black community so that never happens again. Because you just hope that, especially in the home, that's where they're not hearing it. But you know, that's the reality right now. Um, but I wanted to touch on a couple of other white privileges. Steven, you mentioned more, the words are privileges earlier. And we talked about band-aids, um, the dolls,
0: mm-hmm. mostly
1: white mainstream television and news, mostly white, all your favorite characters in Disney, 99% white, right? Right. Most of your teachers white. Um, and I was listening, I just downloaded the book white fragility and I've been listening to it and it was talking about all the major leadership organizations in the United States and, wow. If that doesn't shake you, nothing will. So, um, Elise, I want to give you the floor one more time before we go on to, um, resources and other things. Do you want to share any other stories?
2: Yeah. I mean, when I was actually, when I saw the, the, uh, uh, advertisement that Band-Aid put out, I was so excited because you know, that is (laughs) a struggle, um, of, of having something, whether it was clear band-aids or one that was like way too light for my skin. So I posted on my Instagram, like, I'm so excited about this. And one of my black friends was like, um, girl, like there have been black owned companies do, you know, having band-aids of different colors for years now. And she showed a couple to me and I actually you know, posted that I was going to be supporting a Black-owned company who got it right. And mm. I, it's too bad that Band-Aid took forever to, to jump in. I mean, I'm glad they've woken up now, but other companies have stepped in because they wouldn't, right? And, you know, an, a challenge I would give the listeners is just go to your local store, Target, Walmart, you know, wherever you shop and look, just with your eyes, look at the differences that you see. If you go down the hair care aisle, there are all types of hair products for um, people with fine hair. The, the section for textured hair that black people have, very small, very limited. It's grown a little, but very small. If you go down the, the doll aisle, it's gotten better since you know I was a child or Jesse, when you were maybe looking for dolls as growing up, but it's still predominantly white dolls. Um, and so, and, and if you know anything about how a store sets up their stock and products, having products on the eye level is like the best place to have your products because people are going to look there first before they look up or down. And so look at what is at eye level versus what's at the way top versus the way bottom and you'll your eyes will wake up and so I think it's just important that companies start to look at who they're serving and is is it representative of everybody not just one race and so you know as I've continue to grow and educate myself, especially over the last month, I'm looking at companies and seeing if they're speaking up during this time and seeing if they're advocating. You know, I have stock and investments in different companies. And I'm, I'll am be honest with you, when Starbucks made their statement at first that um, their employees could not, you know, wear any Black Lives Matter movement, I was about to have a serious conversation with my financial advisor. And so I'm glad they they changed their mind and have been more accepting but those are the types of things you have to be thinking about you know where are you investing your money what companies are you supporting with your time and energy and and money and that's where i've continued to educate myself right now
0: so so elisa about the like let's just say the department stores, target and let's say you look at the main line there and you're seeing primarily like white products is that more to do with because I, i did a Google search and it was like, uh, I think uh, blacks in America is roughly like 14%. So let's say white is like 60% and let's say all the other percentages are just broken up between different nationalities. So would, again, using the target example and and depending on what aisle you're in with um, hair products, would that be because is that why you think that there's more white products there? Because maybe it represents... A larger demographic of people so it's more of a monetary thing or do you think it's something something else
2: right well there's different ways you can look at it because you're right the the white community it does serve a bigger part of our population than any other race and so you you can look at it that way you can also look at it as where are you shopping i mean if you're shopping at a certain part of your city that's predominantly white then of course they're going to serve you know, predominantly white products as well. Yeah. But I think what's important to to look at is if you walk into a store, does everyone feel like they can shop there? Does everyone have products that they can get? That's important. Is everyone treated the same? You know, when are, are you, um, I was listening to one person and it's actually a store, I don't want to call them out, but it's a store who... Um, I've shopped at frequently and I found out that they on their walkie talkies when a black person would walk in they there was a name for them and they would uh, follow them around the store and no one should have to feel like that and I thought about I was like I've shopped there a lot I don't remember being followed but you know I also don't know what they were saying on their walkie talkies right so those are the things that I'm, I'm also referring to. Anyone should be able to walk into your store and feel safe and feel comfortable and feel like that there's things that they can buy as well. And if not, you know, then that's not okay.
0: Yeah. It, it's amazing. Like, right. So you're putting that out there and it's just like the law of attraction. Right. So and you find what you're looking for. So if white people collectively are like, oh, there's a black person, follow them around. They might steal something. Right. Energetically, they're putting it out. And it's not that all black people steal something, but they're going to attract to themselves black people who steal something. And they're like, see, knew it. But like energetically, they're like a group of small people are a small group of people are agreeing that black people are going to come into the store to try to steal something. So just as a law of attraction, they're going to attract that. And then it's a self-fulfilling prophecy.
2: Right. Well, you know, in my small stint in retail, <laughs> being working for a retail store in college, um, we were, you know, we were told um, about what to look for, for shoplifters. Mm-hmm. And I will, I can tell you every race shoplifts. <laughs> yeah. Um, and they, you know, the good shoplifters are, they are sneaky, but there was not a race now. I do think that some of my colleagues probably zoned in on certain races more than others. But from what I observed, all across the board, it didn't matter if you were white, black, or purple. There are thieves in this country who are looking for opportunities to you know, get free merchandise. And it doesn't matter what they look like.
0: A hundred percent. I guess the point I was making is like, e- even if those people banded together and said, let's say, the Indian race, You know, it's like, oh, you got to watch all the Indians because the Indians are stealing, Um, and then it's going to be a self-perpetuating because they're going to attract Indians that have that tendency because they're all grouped together in belief, and like what you focus on expands. So um, it doesn't matter if they're saying white or black or whatever; it is they're attracting that to themselves, and so it's just really sad. Yeah,
2: it is.
1: So let's let's move forward and talk about. What contestants can do. So let's circle it back to pageantry. What can contestants do to be more inclusive at pageants?
2: You know, I really think that uh, I, I know that there's sometimes a joke about who's going to win Miss Congeniality, and it's whoever's the nicest and friendly to everybody. But I think it's important that contestants that they when when they're competing that they realize that this is an opportunity to. Not only try to win a title, but it's an opportunity to grow and learn and, you know, be outside of your comfort zone and get to know someone that maybe you wouldn't have had an opportunity to know. I mean, what I loved about competing for Miss International was that it it was several other countries represented and we would have these really great in-depth conversations at night after rehearsals were done or after our events were done. And I remember just thinking how, what a blessing it was to have had this experience that I wouldn't have had if it weren't for the pageant and how it could have been very easy for me to have just, you know, sat by myself or gone back to my room and not engaged and, you know, oh my eyes on the crown and nothing else, but what I would have missed out on because I now have friends from different countries because of that experience and just having the opportunity to listen and love and and be very accepting. So I encourage contestants when they're competing to to, to be kind and to reach out. And when you see someone at rehearsals, maybe who doesn't know anyone and is sitting by themselves, like be the person who goes and sits next to them, you know, invite them to the dinner table when it's time to eat. Those are all the very small things that can make such a big difference for someone, no matter what their, their color is. But I think it's important for contestants to be inclusive.
1: And it's about parents too, right? Like how the parents react, how the parents communicate about the other contestants too.
2: Sure. I mean, when we were talking at the very beginning about, you know, she only won because she was black, sometimes parents are part of the problem, you know, just because your child didn't win. I mean, you can be upset about it, but don't be nasty. And, you know, when you say things like she only won because she's black, you're child or teen or young adult, whoever's competing, they hear that and that stays in their head and and then they start to think, oh, is that the reason, you know? And so I think it's important as well for parents to be very mindful of what what you're saying. I actually challenge parents um, across the board, when you're having conversations with your child, do not do or tell something to your child that you're not willing to do yourself. So when you talk about being inclusive and being kind and accepting of all races, look at your own life first. Cause if you're not doing that, how can you tell your child to do that? Right? Because children, they observe far more than they listen. And so it's important that parents do the heavy lifting first and then guide their children afterwards.
1: Mm -hmm. And when you and I spoke privately, at least we talked about, how with a, a top five of mostly minorities at Miss USA, there was a lot of commotion, and yet there's been so many years where we have no minority representation, and there's not blinking an eye. We said that earlier, and we kind of talked about like, okay, how do we change this? I mean, should there be a quota for pageants started hearing to start in order to represent all types of beauty? Like, there's holes there too. Um, but I, I want you to share what you your response was to that.
2: You know, when you are a contestant and you're looking ab- about where to compete, you know, oftentimes you look at what has been successful in the past. And as a, you know, former black contestant, I didn't realize it when I first started competing, but but I s- soon afterwards <laughs> found out that the white contestants were winning mostly. Um, and it it gets into your head of, you know, well, do you have to be white to win? Or do you have to have plastic surgery to win? Do you have to look a certain way to win? Well, I couldn't change my skin color, so I had to do other things. And so there was a time in my pageant career that I would train really, really hard so I could be, like, stick figure thin because I thought, okay, well, I can't be white, but I can be just as small as, you know, a white contestant, right? Uh, It wasn't until later where I learned to embrace my curves. And, you know, when I did that, I actually started being much more successful in in the fitness competition. So... I think it's an, it's important for pageants when they are, I think it starts with the staff, the directors, and who they are selecting for their judges or selection committee. If you are going to pick an all-white judging panel, I can guarantee you the the winner is probably going to be white. I mean, you, it, it's only one race and, and they're living with their own experiences and with their own views of what beauty is. And so I think it's really important that judging panels and selection committees be very diverse. Um, that way you get a, a bigger net of what beauty is and more acceptance. Um, and I think that is gonna be what really, really helps uh, change the direction pageant goes when it comes to winners and uh, what beauty is and looks like because it's not just one race
1: mm-hmm. so and that's a great point it's a blind spot that i never thought about as a as a contestant and that's the i think the easiest thing a system can do in 2020 or 2021 um to be an ally
0: mm-hmm. yeah yeah that, that makes total sense and i mean back to your point jesse The that- I think in, until Princess Jasmine, she was the first, um, gosh, princess of color. Um, I think everyone else before her was white. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, Disney, like when people are thinking princess and queens, they lean a lot on Disney. And if they're only producing white queens, Snow White, etc., then maybe that pulls over into pageantry, too, just on a subconscious level.
1: Well, and even beyond that, if you look at the history of Disney villains, usually they're represented within they're either in shadow or their their complexion is darker or they're just the whole aura is dark. Mm. And if you look at the history of that, too, what's that perpetuating as well? Yeah. So it's, it's all sides. And I love Disney, but like. Let's not be blind to what we're seeing, you know.
0: But it those, it's just those little subliminal messaging, like in mm. uh, like we see it a lot in movies. Oh, if yeah. somebody um robs a bank or does a financial crime, they're white, but if somebody does like a violent like murder or whatever, they're they're black. And again, that's like hasty generalization, but like you know, it, it's more true than not,
2: yeah. Well, and even I mean, I can share this like cute little story when I was younger and. You know Santa Claus is <laughs> has always been white, and this one particular event, they had a black Santa, and I, my mom took me to go see him to give him my Christmas list, and I was like, no, he looks weird, and my mom was <laughs> so embarrassed, and she's like, Elise, get over yourself. But it's things like that where. I just, even as a child, thought, oh, certain things are supposed to be white. Um, Even, you know, I'm a a Christian, and even, like, Jesus is white. Like, absolutely not. If you look at history, Jesus is not white. But that's what you know we were told um, you know when we were brought up or what history lessons looked like and so it's it's interesting the subtle pieces of our history in our country that continue in a lot of ways even when it comes to pageants
0: yeah, yeah. cuz you i mean you look at jesus's skin tone in most pictures he would fry in Israel, he would he would be a walking sunburn. There was no way that he is that light. Um, right? No, a, agreed. And like um, you know, speaking of Christianity, and this is something I I found really interesting. Um, I had a black uh, professor I went to when I went to Bible college, and she asked me to study the the Canaanite curse, um, where a lot of people um, back in the day they used it to justify slavery um, because. Um, canaanites were were cursed by um by noah you know that whole branch and out of that branch is where um like the african race if i'm saying that correctly like came out of so that's what like white people would say oh well they were cursed and totally was a a very gross misinterpretation of scripture of what that meant but regardless but then i started to go back and do even more research and what i discovered i'm like okay well if you believe that god created adam and eve right? And we all derive from Adam and Eve. It's impossible based on my knowledge of science that two like really pale pasty white people will get together and have like an extreme black baby. But it is possible where two black, just the darkest black, you could, the darkest black skin texture that you could think of got together and they could have a lighter shade of a baby. Mm-hmm. And then that over generations and generation could give us this rainbow of color that we have of mm-hmm. people. So, I mean, if you just think about it logically, it makes sense that Adam and Eve, even me, like when I was reading, I was like, Oh my gosh, I always thought Adam and Eve was just white. Right. But like when, when I look at this logically and if it really happened, like the Bible says it happened, they couldn't have been unless mm-hmm. like, you know, <laughs> the science laws were different back then, which we know they're not. So it's like they have to be like the darkest shade of dark in order to have all this rainbow of color of people. Mm-hmm. So, anyways, I found that it was interesting. So, this kind of begs the question with the variety of panel and should there be a quota? Like, where do. Where do pageants like Miss Black USA or Miss Black America like is there still a place for them in pageantry because Black Lives Matter or are they kind of segregating themselves saying no only only black women can compete over here. Like I understand why it was created initially because black individuals are not allowed to compete in Miss America or the others. I mean as long as my history is right but is there still a place for them now. What do you think.
2: Well, right. And I, I, I've i heard this a lot where people will say, well, if we're going to talk about being inclusive, why are there pageants like uh, Miss Black USA? Or why are there television stations like BET? And it's important to know the history of it. There are pageants because back you know, in our history, Black people were not allowed to compete in pageants first. And then it was okay, you can compete, you you know, you're not going to win, right? So in order to just be successful, they started their own pageant. Same in television. It was, you know, okay, well, we can't get Black actors and actresses on these shows, so we'll just start our own network. And that way we can still do what we want to do and, and what we love and our passion. So I think now that people are starting to wake up, you know, now more than ever, I hope there is a day that we... Um, no matter what the pageant is, that it can be an inclusive pageant and anyone can feel accepted and, and feel like they are going to be successful. I don't know if that means that it's going to, you know, play, pageants like Miss Black USA will just dissolve or television stations like BET will dissolve. I mean, I think there's a lot of pride in the people that, that started, you know, those things that, that. This is we did this for this reason, and now we just have history. So I don't I don't know what that will look like going forward, but I do hope that, and I I've already started to see it when we and it comes to pageants that it's it's a more accepting place. Um, I hope in television and movies that it's more inclusive and accepting, and you know then my future children will not have to do something like create mm-hmm. a black owned whatever, um, because they, they felt like they couldn't be successful in this area. So they had to start their own, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. It makes sense as like, as much as it can from a white guy's perspective, Mm -hmm. because I've never had, I mean, if I'm targeting a niche, I'm targeting a niche because like, I think this is the best way to penetrate my product into a a very noisy marketplace. I've never thought about it as like, I have to start in a niche because I'm not allowed to start somewhere else. Mm
2: Absolutely. Well, and that's what I'm saying. Like the fact to me, going back to something so simple as a Band-Aid, the fact that a a international corporation could not think in their boardroom to make Band-Aids for people of color is just mind blowing to me. I just like who is in the boardroom? Well, oh, hold on. Mostly white people. So they're not going to necessarily think about things like that. And so now you have all these other companies who are like, okay, fine, y'all aren't going to think about it. So we will. And we're going to start our own company so that Black people feel like they have a product that's for them. It shouldn't have to be like that. But for so long in our country, it has been. So for me, I'm really proud of Black-owned companies because like you said, Stephen, they they found a niche that needed to be filled and they were willing to step up to the plate to do it. And as long as our country is going to continue to have pieces of racism in it, then I will tell people of color to continue filling in the gaps. Mm-hmm. Um, we can get to a place where we overcome that.
0: I really like, well,
1: and- Oh, oh go good. N-
0: no, I've talked enough. <laughs> you go. ahead. No, I was just, yeah,
1: you use the word pride when you were talking about the pride of developing the Miss black USA, the Miss black America pageant. And now if you look at pageants, there's a Miss petite pageant a Miss plus pageant. There are segments now that have their own pageants. So if, If we're talking about pride, which all of these pageants have pride to represent that part of the community, for me, I see Miss Black USA, Miss Black America, and all the other offshoots as incredibly relevant because why wouldn't they want to represent their community on in the highest honor? Like you have a Miss New York, Miss Texas, they represent their own communities.
2: So Right and you know, my my aunt is a former Miss Black Colorado, um, and she and she won back, or I'm sorry, Mrs. Black Colorado. So she won back in the 80s. Um, she was very supportive of my pageant career, and so she came to most of my pageants. And I'll never forget when I won one of the pageants, which, to be honest with you, all of the pageants that I competed in and um, or won were predominantly white pageants. And I, I forgot which pageant it was, but after I won, she just had tears in her eyes because she was like, at least I would have never been able to win a pageant like this ever. not because I wasn't, you know, pretty enough or that I wasn't in shape enough. It was because they didn't see my beauty. And the fact that you just won this pageant is remarkable Mm -hmm. because it showed in that moment that our country was shifting.
0: Wow. That's beautiful. It's sad. And at the same time, beautiful to see, like, that we've made this kind of progress, you know? Right. Um, right, Yeah. So, okay, so if those listening want to continue to learn more about Black Lives Matter movement or simply become more, like, intentional about being an ally, like, let's talk through some resources um, that you would be proud, like, to have our friends, our listeners look into.
2: So there's there's a couple that I've really kind of zoned in on. I'll start with the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, They provide incredible resources, but I know there's been a little bit of controversy over the last week um, about if you make donations, where the money is going to. So I have, you know, I'm looking at that because I'm I'm being very mindful of where I'm donating at this time. I have not personally donated to the Black Lives Matter movement because I know that. Um, there are still some question marks as to where the money is going, and I think it's important for people to to know. Um, but in terms of just a place of resource, I think it's it's a good movement to learn more about the history of Black people, to learn more about what's going on in our country even now. They've given resources about even COVID nineteen when it comes to Black people, and so that's really I think an incredible resource. Another one that I love is The Conscious Kid. And the reason why I love that is it's not a, um, a resource specifically tied to just Black people. They talk about everything. Their focus over the last three weeks has been um, for the Black community. But I think that when we talk about racism in our country, you have to remember racism, you are not born racist. It is a learned behavior. It's a learned mindset. And it starts in the home. And so what I love about the conscious kid is they give incredible resources for parents, even for teachers, on how to have conversations with children, to help them be more inclusive and kind, and accepting of all people. Right now, like I said, it's geared specifically to the black community. But even, um, you know, on a bigger forum. They, they speak to all issues that children could be faced with. So that's an incredible resource, especially during this time. Um, and then finally, you know, to those in the Black community or allies to the Black community, the you know, Black mental wellness is a great um, resource. That's important and near and dear to my heart because I am a psychotherapist. So uh, thinking about people's mental and emotional health during this time is extremely important to me. But they give incredible resources on um, taking care of yourself right now as a person of color, and you know, I, I personally know I've been getting so many messages about uh, just wanting to know more and wanting to to be educated. and I love it. But I even know that I have to have my own self-care and I have to shut it off um, for periods of time just so that I can regroup. Um, and that resource gives some great ideas on how to do that. Also, if you're an ally, how to take care of your mental health, because if you're out protesting or um, just wanting to know what to say to those in the Black community, um, you know, you have to still take care of yourself and your emotions as well. So those are three that really stick out to me during this time. There's plenty more. I'm just sticking to those at at the moment. But I think, you know, as a, a closing point of just continuing to to keep your minds and your hearts open and to learn. And um, it, it can be very easy to get defensive um, or to to shut people down, but right now it's not the time. I mean, really there's never a time to be that way, but right now certainly isn't. It's, it's a time to learn and grow and really make big steps in our country. Yeah.
1: yeah. I just, I looked up all three of those um, as you were saying them Elise, both the website and the Instagram, and I think the easiest thing those listening can do is click the follow button on Instagram. And when you see those posts come up on your social media, take the time to stop and read them. That's the least we can do. And they have gr- amazing content already that I'm seeing. So we'll make sure to link to all those resources for the podcast as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So in conclusion, there's more that we can all be doing to make everyone feel more comfortable in. And- confident about being themselves i mean after all that that's what pageantry is about right and that's why there are so many different pageants out there like we want everyone to feel inclusive and this is such a great movement to get behind to do just that so elise is there anything else that you would like to add
2: well, first, I, I definitely just want to thank the two of you for um, having this conversation. I know it's outside the scope of what you'll normally talk about on the pageant planet. But um, like I said at the beginning, it's an important conversation. And I hope those listening, um, have, you know, just learned more because of our conversation. But I also want to thank those who have been allies and advocates over the last couple of weeks or even longer because this has not (laughs) certainly been it's been an issue longer than three weeks um it's it's been an issue as long as our country's been in existence but for those of you who are courageous and brave enough to stick up for those who are hurting um during this time it speaks a lot about your heart and your character and I just want to personally say thank you for those who have who have done that and who are committed to um, supporting the black community during this time.
1: And I recently read a quote that said baby steps are still steps in the right direction. I don't know if you posted that at least but I saw it recently and it's important that we celebrate these small efforts like brands being more inclusive but also it's important to keep challenging what's been the status quo. If we stop now I feel like we're going to halt the progress. So, Elise, I'm so proud to be your friend. I'm so grateful for, to you for taking the time to share your heart in such a vulnerable way to our listeners. Um, so, those listening, please, please, please think about your actions and your choices going forward and take time to explore at least one of the resources recommended.
0: Yeah, Thank you again for listening and a special shout out to Elise Banks for joining us for this relevant and important episode. And if you've received any benefit from this show or from one's previous please consider giving us a five star review it's really simple to do just scroll up click the star rating hit the five really simple it seems like a small action but it really does help us keep this show going week after week so until next time take care Want to become a part of pageant history? Create a free contestant or business profile on pageantplanet.com to unlock hidden features and connect with other experts throughout the world.